Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. This is our last Torah study before the Yamim Noraim, before the Days of Awe, before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So this is the uh, Torah portion that is always read just before the holidays. And so there are, of course, many connections that our teachers, uh, our respected teachers make between this parasha uh, and the high holidays and this whole process of coming together um, soon to not only begin the year, but of course our beginning of the year is about repairing relationships, is about really taking time to do a cheshbon hanefesh, uh, an accounting of our own souls, our own situations, our own selves. Um, where are we? Uh, what is it that we would want to change really? What do we want to give our time and energy and attention to changing? What are the ways that we need to make amends to people that we feel like we've hurt or who have told us we've hurt them? We, um, we take it seriously that we have the opportunity and the real possibility of, of changing. We're going to look at 29, Deuteronomy 29, the beginning. We're in the beginning third of every parasha because we're in the first year of the triennial cycle. For those of us who read on a triennial cycle and take it seriously, we are, of course, still uh, on the other side of the Yarden, of the Jordan, where Moshe is continuing his address to the people. These are his final uh, addresses to the people. He, we've gone through the different laws, the reiteration of law, um, that he has done both from the the larger perspective of the of the uh, what is the kingship? What do you call it? The yeah, I know what it is in Hebrew. The monarchy. Thank you. I thought you were saying Malchut. Um, yeah, right. So the monarchy, the judiciary, how to build a just society, what that looks like, and then. To private laws, laws more about private status, family status issues. And now, now we're coming, he's gonna zoom back out. The text is gonna zoom back out to kind of a, um, much wider lens from a higher, uh, place in terms of, you know, widening out the view. Because we're getting now the, the language that kind of closes this whole, business before the poetry we have at the very end of Deuteronomy. So let's read 29. Someone read at 29.9. You stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your tribal heads, your elders, and your officials, all the men of Israel, your children, your wives, even the stranger within your camp, from woodchopper to water drawer, to enter into the covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is concluding with you this day with exceptions to the end that he may establish you this day as his people and be your God, as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I make this covenant with its sanctions, not with you alone, but with those who are standing here with us this day before the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here this day. Okay. How do you do it, Sadi? I can't print. Once you learn cursive, some of us never can print again. Natsav, the Shoresh. What does it mean? To stand. What is the general word Hebrew uses for stand? Omed. It is not nitzav. This has a different sense about it. Even not knowing Hebrew, tell me what's different between you stand this day before Adonai, your God, and some other word that would be chosen for that. What might that difference imply? Attention. Attention. Good. Importance. Importance. As in, what do you stand for? Ah. 
there seems to be implied when you're looking at something like an agreement or some important thing. Witness, lovely. Witnesses in England stamp in their box, don't they? There is something about standing as witness. There's something about standing for something. Why do we use that language? What do you stand for? It's active. It's like, where do you stand on this? Where do you stand on this issue? It absolutely comes from this. There's something brave about standing because you're standing there in front of something bigger than you are, but you're facing it with respect. So there's some courage involved in that, isn't there? To stand before something way bigger than you and stand respectfully, hold your ground. The, the mountain is flipping smoking okay they saw thunder (laughs) this is not this is not something easy to stand before i I was thinking that it's implying that it's not only you're not only standing for yourself in the here and now but for future generations so certainly certainly in this text that is explicitly stated, certainly. So this is the covenanting ceremony between Moshe, that Moshe is effecting for God, between God and the people, yes? All y'all stand this day, they're making a covenant, right? So, and, and we're going to get to all y'all, which is not redundant. Um, I make this covenant with its sanctions, not just with you alone. They are at a covenanting ceremony right now, which is binding on future generations. Where else did we see this word, this language used? At Sinai. Sinai. Yes. We saw this at Sinai. I'm going to give you another one that I just discovered. It's my new favorite thing in the world. I just read this. All right, so, but for now, let's just work with this one and Sinai. Tell me a little bit about the covenanting at Sinai. What, What happened with the covenanting ceremony at Sinai when they were nitzav before God at Sinai? What What happened in that moment? So that's a midrash. <laughs> it's the midrash. They are, they they were overwhelmed. They they said we will do and we will hear. We will do, mm-hmm. and we will hear. <coughs> Sorry, who's the we? <coughs> so theoretically, it's the people there, and here it's saying the people who aren't there as well. So what we get at Sinai is a covenanting with the people who were there. And it was we, the people. There's not a lot said about individuals at Sinai. Everybody was supposed to do what they needed to do to prepare, to ritually prepare. This was the moment, the Sinai experience in our mythic history, this is the mythic moment we became a people. The theophany was public. God appeared, right? There were there were indications that God was in the house, so to speak. Yes? Smoking mountains, trembling fires, and seeing thunder, and crazy, crazy stuff. God was there. That theophany was public. And it is the moment that they became a people. It was about a bunch of individuals that had come out of Egypt who become a collective at this moment of covenanting. I may be extrapolating too much, but is that where we got we the people from? (laughs) No. Okay. I was using that as an American to read it back into this. No, it works both ways, Mordecai Kaplan said. My American identity should inform my Judaism as much as my Jewish identity informs my Americanism. Um, So having said that about the Sinai moment of covenanting, 
why did I stress this communal aspect as I'm saying I'm going to talk to you about all y'all stand here this day? Very nice. Absolutely. This is why some scholars say we get all of the listings of all of these you men, because you is usually the men, your tribal heads, your elders, your officials, you men, your children, the women, even the stranger, from woodchopper to water drawer. Those are the lowliest jobs you could have at this time. So your garbage collector, your sewage engineers. The people who scrub your floors. Nobody is exempt. Nobody is left out because of status, because of money, because of choice, even. All right. All y'all are standing here as individuals. And not only all y'all, kuchem, but all y'all that will ever be. Future generations. The rabbi, the Bechor Shor, of course, reads into this. This means also anyone who would ever choose Judaism. Every convert is implicated in this. It's not just who's going to be born to the Jewish people, but whoever's going to be a part of the Jewish people. This is binding on them, too. They accepted it, too. Right here. So this is a slightly different nitzav. Each person stands as an individual within the collective. And every single individual signing on is necessary. Nobody is exempt on the one hand. On the other hand, there's nobody who's unnecessary. That's huge to me. Nobody is unnecessary. Little kids are necessary. For the covenant to be in place and intact, every single person of the people of Israel matters. So this covenanting ceremony, of course, is not unique in the ancient world to Israel. It is actually well attested all over the ancient Near East, generally between kings and vassal kings, a conquering king and the conquered community accepts publicly in a ceremony the rule of the new king. This is extraordinarily common. I've said it a million times. What makes this unique? What makes the Israelite version unique? The king is God. That is unique in the ancient world. It's unique in the world. That the covenant is not made with a conquering human power but with the queen of queens. So this idea that, that everyone is covenanted, everyone is bound, everyone stands, that is still to this day how we understand it. There are people with better covenant than others, right? There, among the Jewish people, there is nobody who has a higher level of, you know, interest in this covenant than anybody else. It is a completely democratic religion, completely. And anything else, it, to my mind anyway, is a warping of one of the core statements that goes back this far. The women are here. The children are here. The servants are here. The stranger in your midst is here. The big machers are not exempt from having to stand there with the water drawer. Right. Normally, uh, a, uh, a deal would be made, say, to conquer another people. Might make the deal with their representatives. Right? That's right. Nice. Nice point, Ruben. That. Often the real deal is made with representatives who are considered to be machers of some kind. Here, God makes the deal with every single person of the people of Israel. And it seems to me 
all standing on the same level. They are not higher level. They're not. They're not deuses that you know head tables. They're no cheap seats. No cheap seats. Right. I always tell the bar mitzvah kid all the way up. You got to go all the way up to the cheap seats. <laughs> I, I like that justification. <laughs> but here I hear a but. Of course. Does it say your wives? It says Kolish. Nishechem, your women, your wives. It says men, and then you would think men, women, and children. That's sort of the way it's usually, but here it's children and then women. So the women are secondary. 100%. There's no denying the social order of the ancient Near East. 100%. Um, having said that, it's pretty revolutionary given that reality that the women are in that sense standing equal to on the ground before God the men. And we hold you know we hold both of those. Now as progressive Jews, we get to point to this and say there's no way you can ever tell me right that women aren't you know, are somehow read out of the deal in any sense. <laughs> I was just thinking of a minion we did recently here where Rabbi Renner was doing it and was challenged for saying Kaddish without 10 men. But there were wow. 10 people there. There were 25 people there. <gasps> there were 25 Jews there. But he was called on the carpet for and made a, a big stink was made that this is not Judaism and and this is where I just go <laughs> yeah a temple member or, or relatives of a temple member oh, yes oh, okay. not by our rabbi not by our senior rabbi mapito hundred <laughs> percent women are same rights and responsibilities as men unless it is gender specific brit la you know circumcision there are some things that it wouldn't be good to, to make it <laughs> be of the same. I read, I read an article in the paper this week from May David, which is that the modern Orthodox just appointed the Yeah, it's coming. It's so coming. I saw another article about Orthodox, you know, stuff around woman, rabbi. You're starting to see Orthodox, woman, rabbi. You're starting to see those three words in a lot of articles. It's coming. They, they, they're just not going to be able to push back against that one much, much longer. It is a step. It is happening for sure. For sure. What are they going to call her? Rabba. They called him Rabba. But that's no, that's feminine of Rav. Rabba is technically the correct term. Right. Rabbi's English from Rabbi, my Rav, but but the term we use to describe a, a rabbi who's a woman is Rabba. It's equal to Rav. What what we've left is the language of Rabbanit, which is like Rabbitzin. So we've left Rabbanit, which used to be the only way people thought of the term rabbi and female, but that means the wife of the rabbi. It's Rebetzin, essentially. So now Rabbah is the accepted normative term for women rabbis. That is well, the same. And it goes back, what do you call a female doctor? Doctor. But it's different. And it's different, right? Hebrew's a gendered language. So, so, you know, I'm a big Star Trek fan. So one of the big discussions among fans of the show was when Captain Janeway... Right when there was a show where the main character was Captain um, Janeway, like, what are you going to call her? Do you call her sir <coughs> or ma'am? And in the beginning years of the show, they called her sir. She gave an order. They said, yes, sir. Because sir was understood to be a title of authority and respect and not about gender. 
but it's complicated once you have gender involved in the actual term. Sir feels weird because she's not a sir. She's a ma'am. But yes, ma'am sounds like you're talking to mom. <laughs> right? You like you finish your peas. Yes, ma'am. So um, at least where I grew up, it's yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So do anybody who wants to save their skin in the South when they're told to do something by a grown-up. Um, so, so my point is in Hebrew, once you have rav as a, as a gendered term, it, do you use that for, you know, for us for a while they did when we signed our Hebrew names, when, you know, when you sign your Hebrew name on a document, now, if you're a rabbi, you sign harav, blah, 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 the, the rav, so-and-so. So the question was, do we sign Harav Rachel Bat Yechezkel Veshendel, or do we sign Haraba Rachel? And that, that still is not determined. What do you think? I still sign Harav because it feels more like MD. It feels more like doctor. If I'm using my title, I would say I would say Rabba. You know, what do you do? Ani Rabba. <laughs> a big doctor. She calls herself Chazanta. Uh, Chazanta? <laughs> there you go. It's like the wife of a rabbi. It's a rabbit's. Right? That, that's good. Absolutely. Chazanta <laughs> Emerita. That is a big title, Flo. Chazanta Emerita. All right. Because <laughs> you're special. <laughs> you don't he told to. on you. You don't have to, Flo. <laughs> All right, so 15. Fifteen. Yep. Uh, you passed over those who were here today and not here today. No, we talked about that, didn't we? Future generations, anyone who would be Jewish, anyone who would be born to the Jewish people. But do we feel that? Do we feel what? <laughs> How do we as progressive Jews feel that obligation that we are still part of the covenant and not just that we individually opt in and opt out? Would you like to speak to that? No, I'm asking <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, there's a, for a lot of people, Jewish is whether you kind of decide to do it or don't decide to do it, and there isn't the sense that there was a deal made a long time ago that is binding upon us today. Maybe this is part of the, Amer the American thing of how can somebody else obligate me to something if I haven't done it myself? Mm -hmm. Of course, in our war, our war that, ha that happens, there are contracts that are signed, you sign for you and your heirs, and they don't get a choice. But I think for a lot of progressive Jews, there's difficulty feeling that we really are obligated by something that was done 3,000 years ago. It kind of is a nice idea to kind of have out there. People say I'm part of a people. It feels good, but I don't know that we feel that real obligation. If so, what obligation do we feel? How do progressive Jews do? I mean, I think it's, a, it's easier for Orthodox Jews who kind of accept this more literally but for more progressive Jews, I think it's somewhat troublesome. The obligation idea, or the, yeah. that it happened I mean, and I'm really, obligated yeah. to something really, that happened a long am time am ago. Really, am I really obligated? Okay. And if so, what am I obligated to? Sarah. Good trouble. Because <laughs> <laughs> it calls on persons who have become adults to make choices out of their own understandings rather than just automatically. That that people are questioning and trying to figure out what do I feel obligated to and buy and and then with joy and pleasure choose to do it whether it's Shabbos or Rosh Hashanah I mean 
A brisket. I'm not objecting to that. What I'm saying is, I don't think that, what you just said, is the sense of what we just read. Or even if it is, I'm not sure what Sarah just said happens as frequently as it needs to. Well, that's another question. Another point. I, I wish I wish this was what was going on with every Jew is trying to figure out what is it I want to do, what is it I feel committed to. You know, I, I don't even know that that question is being asked a lot of the time. Um, we, we have a few comments, and then I just want to try to remember before I get too far afield what I was going to say. Um, okay. Yeah, Barbara. What if it's that there's a door that's been held open for you by disagreement, and when you, yes, there's an obligation, as Sarah says, once you walk through the door and you decide that you're going to do it, but what if the covenant isn't like you're an indentured servant, <laughs> whether you like it or not, but that this, this agreement set in place something for all who would want to be bound by it and by the whatever rules are of your in or out miss conversion or blood or whatever. Um, so it's in place. It's like a net. It's like a big net. It's there, and you can pick it up. So you're oh, saying so someone can opt in, that it's the conditions have been set yes, so that you can opt in if you want. And you're in whether you know it or not, but once you ah. are in, you are there it is. It's ah. there. It's like you open the door and oh there's this room with all this stuff and rules and regulations and this makes sense and I'm gonna learn about this now. Anyway, that's the way I I, I have okay. currently opted in. So <laughs> <laughs> that's your opt in. Yes. <laughs> Mickey? You know, we're all uh here, seekers of the way. In seeking our way whatever way it is for self-actualization, fulfillment, uh, we, we make certain, we have to make certain choices. Choices are not necessarily good or bad or, or right or wrong, but um, uh, life is uh, a series of uh, clinical trials. Mm -hmm. We try this, doesn't work, okay, this time. We try that, maybe that'll work. We try this. It's just like finding direction in life. And what we learn out of the Bible, uh, uh, Torah, is uh, our directions that help us to achieve uh, direction, whatever way we want to go. When one is mivakesh, when one is seeking. Right. So I, I always come back to my Burt Kleinman no. part of my brain <laughs> that says, how many are seeking? Yes. I think uh, that this is what we get that we were obligated to. And there's another religion that's obligated to original sin. So, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> if you got to take one, you'll take original covenant versus original sin. I, I think we got the good one. Okay, I'm down with that. So, um, a couple of things in terms of this discussion. Not that it's exhaustive by any sense. So, part, part of, for me, what... To answer your question, Bert, about covenant and being obligated, to me there's kind of several layers. One is what what history is is expressed by this. You're bound for the rest of the Jewish future means you're part of the Jewish people, like it or not, care about it or not, know it or not, shake a family tree, some Jew's going to fall out, I always say, right? So you may not even know that you're part of those people, but you're like, you are in. And then we happen to live in a time where we get to opt in or not. But what I, I had a long, a fascinating discussion in my office one day with somebody who wanted to see me because she had a problem with something I said, and she was very agitated by it. Um, I guess it was in a bar mitzvah meeting with her kid. And she asked to have another conversation with me privately afterwards to address it. I said, of course. So she came in and she said, I didn't like at all that you told my son that he is a member of the Jewish people, whether he likes it or not, and whether he chooses it or not. We choose our identities and 
No one can choose that or impose that on us. And I believe that is going to turn my son away from any sense of wanting to be part of the Jewish people because you told him who he is. You can't ever tell somebody who they... So we had this fascinating conversation. I said, tell me more about that perspective. So we had this hour-long, intense conversation because what I said is, he doesn't get to pick! (laughs) His heritage is a Jewish heritage. He can reject that heritage because of the hate. It would break my heart. But of course he can reject it. It doesn't make him not Jewish. And she said, what do you mean? Of course he won't be Jewish if he does something else. I'm like, yes, he will. He'll be a Jew doing something else. He'll be a Jew in an ashram. Ashrams are filled with Jews. <laughs> They're still Jews. <laughs> so we we got into this very law. And she said, so are you saying that it's a race? I said, I did not say race. I said heritage, right? So, But it really made me think about Bert's question. So what does it mean that we consider ourselves as and our children and our contemporaries and our grandchildren as Jews, whether or not they do? And I just try, I think, to stay in. They are part of the Jewish people, and our work is to make Judaism and Jewish life compelling enough and peoplehood compelling enough that they will want to identify actively with the Jewish people and its heritage and contribute to how it changes and evolves. I spend my life doing that. I will spend my life till my dying day doing that. God willing, should be 120 years from now. Um, That's all I can do. I sometimes gashry and worry and I'm up late thinking, who cares really about any of this? Who feels bound in any way anymore? Who feels called anymore? How much do I feel compelled and called if I wasn't working here You know, on bad days? Like, I don't know, on cynical days. I don't know. But all I know is that our job is to guard and fuel and keep this tradition alive, relevant, vibrant, meaningful, so that it does inform our path. And it does hopefully provide our young people with something they're going to want to affirm and change in the ways that they need to. And in terms of it happened 3,000 years ago, who still feels bound by that? I really try to stay sometimes with what with, with the rabbis say in the Midrash, which which is, Atem Nitzavim Hayom. Y'all are standing here, Hayom does not mean 3,000 years ago. It means today. Hayom literally means today, this day. I don't worry about, I'm, I'm not necessarily connected to, you know, or bound by or have a sense of 3,000 years ago other than to heritage and history and how many have kept it before me. But I do feel connected to Atem Nitzavim Hayom. Y'all are all called today into obligations about how to treat one another, how to behave. That lady was saying, when my son grows up, you can look at the menu of religions and, uh, or maybe uh, you can look at who's a Democrat, who's a Republican, who's a Republican, who it doesn't work so bad. But that's, that's what she was saying. Yes. And who are you to tell my son he's Jewish? You don't, you can't do that. And that is a turnoff and that is oppression of a sort. To, to define someone for them, you can't do that. I said, yeah, huh? <laughs> How did it end? We, we said we would have lunch again and like <laughs> continue the discussion because it was fascinating. Can I speak up for her one second? <laughs> And then Laura's going to say This is not, not ideological, but I would imagine as a parent, I speak as a parent, that probably what she was wanting was her son to come to it of his own heart and for it not to be imposed from the outside. Mm-hmm. And so even though I think you were very different, I think she was coming from a place, from also a very Jewish place. 
and that is of wanting that her son not do it because he had to or because it was the law, but that it was his heart and his decision and that for her that would make, I'm projecting upon her, but maybe make him a more authentic and more dedicated Jewish person. It was a discussion about identity yeah. and who defines our identity. That's what I found fascinating. And I'm like, the Jews get to decide who's a Jew. And Jews and decide that. And Hitler... Had his opinion for sure, but that's not a Jewish opinion, no. right? So, but people then didn't didn't have a choice. If no, I grand, I, I understand, were, but Jew, but in general, Jews decide yeah. who's yeah. a Jew. Jews for Jesus are not Jews, and they say yes, we are, and we say no, you're not, and they say, how do you get to decide that? I'm like, because we're the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. The people who are not of the Jewish people who call themselves Jews because they are following the Jewish teachings of Jesus. Okay, go ahead. I'm telling you, it was so not that. Because what do you think as a rabbi I was going to communicate? I said, this is a gift. He can reject the gift. No problem. There's no problem. But it's a gift that he can't, un- he doesn't have to accept it, but it's already given. Right? So we don't choose to be Americans. If we're born here, even if you move somewhere else and get another passport, you're an expat forever. There are some things we just get born with. And I love that, that he belongs to this whether he wants to or not. He doesn't have to choose it. He doesn't have to do anything about it. It just is. Isn't that fabulous? He's ours, whether he feels that or not. I still think that is a fabulous thing. And in America 2014, where everybody's this and everybody has a menu and everybody chooses and now I'm this and now I'm that, people are more confused and lonely. Suicide rates are through the roof. Robin Williams didn't teach us something? When we belong to something bigger, we don't have to love it or even go there. But when someone says, there's a home and it's always here for you, you don't ever have to come here again. But if you ever need to, it's always here. I said, if that's the worst thing your son hears, okay, I'm at fault. I own it. But that's really where I stand. This is his home. And he can always come here. For He doesn't have to come here for 50 years. But we're here. And the door's open. He has a key. And I feel like if we can't give that to our kids now, shh. This is what I'll be speaking about Yom Kippur. Precisely what you just said. To give you, you know, the nutshell version is that I, looking at the world today and what's happening, we can't control anti-Semites and what they do and what they say. And the because it's irrational, right? The violence against Jews, the all of that is just it's so irrational. What do you do? You can't deal with that. There's nothing to deal with when it's irrational. But what we can do is make sure we are inculcating our children and ourselves as role models for each other of a positive Jewish identity. That is my counter to anti-Semitism. Because I can't do anything about the anti-Semitism out there, but God forbid it becomes internalized. That's what's driven more Jews away from Judaism than anything else, is internalized anti-Semitism. Shame about being Jewish on some deep level that isn't even conscious. 
that it's all silly, that it, you know, all the things that we've been charged with that get internalized. And as a gay person, I can tell you. As a woman, I can tell you. Internalized misogyny, internalized homophobia, internalized anti-Semitism, they're all the same. And they all do such damage. And we are just now beginning to come out of the shadow, I believe, of the Holocaust and the internalized anti-Semitism and how it's eaten at our people from the inside. And our tradition and our vibrancy for people who say, I don't want anything to do with it. And um, so positive Jewish identity, that is the way we can counter all of those messages, studying like this, finding the beauty you know, the eternal meaning in our tradition and in our language and in our crazy way of doing things and thinking about things. And, you know, that's our obligation, I believe, right now in the face of what we're seeing. And uh, I have to add in another very deep internal bias that we have is against Hundred percent, hundred percent. And if we returned more to our traditional perspective on things, that would not be so, right? Our tradition is very clear about venerating our elders and respecting their knowledge and wisdom and contribution. And they are the officials and the leaders, and that right, they are the zikanim. Who made up the the big court? The zikanim, the elders. Those were the ones vested with authority. You're hundred percent right. I was just gonna say any ism groups people as a group and doesn't look at them as Totes. All right, so what Margo? No, I just you know, I don't have very high expectations of my family um, Jewishly. I mean, and all, and I've said this to them many, many times over the years. All I ask is that you're proud to be Jewish. And I, I don't know. And one time, one of them said to me, "Okay, Ma, I'm proud." To be Jewish. <laughs> but maybe somewhere in there, a little of that got through. Um, well, and. And to go to the heart of that is how do we make them proud to be Jewish? That's what my, and I'm not, I'm not done with my sermon yet because <laughs> I haven't answered the question exactly yet, but, but I'm getting there. My shower door is covered. My mirror is covered with dry, oh, it's just crazy. So, but that, how do we make them proud to be Jewish? When everyone else is telling them it's a shameful, awful, terrible thing, it's filled with superstition and a God we don't even believe in, a God that talks on a mountain, really. How how are they supposed to defend any of it, even to themselves, when they know nothing, nothing of the gorgeousness of this tradition? I struggle in my own house, right? I don't want to go to a Jewish school, Mom. I want to go to a regular, normal school. A normal school. Like, you know, like, what is that? You know, so I don't want to go to, I don't want to be with Jews. I want to be with real, real kids. That's a rabbi's daughter talking. Right? So, like, what, why should she be proud to be Jewish? Why? Because I said so. Because Margo said so. And you do not want to take on Margo. Well, I think that's part of our battle. One thing we haven't brought up is when kids are learning science, and science makes them question Oh, you have way. hit a big one, my so, friend. you know, I had a conversation with my son, and, and I'm like, why can't science and your Judaism live in harmony? And it, like, well, because they can't. I'm like, yes, they can. <laughs> so it is a so, very you know, serious situation like, we have right now. I'm like, am I really having this conversation? So I call I it... I don't even know exactly how I feel, how I can live in harmony, but I know it can't. So, because <laughs> I do it. Um, so I call it scientism because it is not science that's the issue. It's scientism and like any ism, it, there comes, why would you believe, cause it's a belief, ism is a belief. Why would you believe that there is absolutely nothing past that which we can see and measure? That's a belief that there's nothing past that other than that 
why do you choose to believe that? And they look at me like I'm crazy. Like, in other words, why do I believe in God? I don't believe in God. But you believe that there's nothing at all that science can't get at. Touch my love. Is my love real? You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't measure it. How do you know I love you? You believe... But it, but it's a really, really serious problem that we have right now. So many kids sit in my office and tell me, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't believe in God. You know, that I believe in the Big Bang and science. I'm like, me too. You know, we have this conversation all the time. How does it coexist? And we got to come up with a really good elevator speech about how they coexist. We have two weeks. <laughs> we have- <laughs> Yeah. Touch my love, yeah. Rabbi Harold Kushner. Touch my love. You have to operationalize your love by hugs. But if I don't have arms, no. you still know I love you. How do you know that? How do you know that? Because there's things we can't see. measure or see that are not that are more real than this table. All right, so. I just have to, but I can't let it go. I'm not going to spend long on it, but for you, I have to do it. I just have to do it. The other place we see Nitzav, you're going to love this. <laughs> Miriam, as she's watching her brother in the basket, and she is on the bank of the river, sees Bat Paro <laughs> discover the basket, and it says Miriam is Nitzav on the bank and she confronts the princess uh, oh my, my shower door from top to bottom is about the implications of that in our world today what does it mean to be nitzav over and against the representation of the most horrifying terrifying cruel regime ever that's, that's what Pharaoh was for the Israelites Miriam stood looking at the next generation of power, of leadership, of the cruelest, most terrifying regime ever, as a slave, and was Nitzav, and suggested as, the, as she discovers this is a Hebrew baby, in that moment of absolute mortal danger, a slave girl, because she is Nitzav, suggests something completely unthinkable. And it not only saves the life of Moshe, but it changes the course of history and brings down the empire of evil. What is the message for us? Looking at ISIS, looking at the Islamic State, what is, what is the message for us about being Nitzav? I don't know, but I know there's something there. <laughs> Please, Sarah. <laughs> I now have a totally different take on it because all in all are us standing up together. That's all in all. That's us. Thank you, Sarah. Yes, that is the heart of Atem Nitzavim Hayom Kuchem. All y'all stand together. And one thing I read said we. We can stand with people that we have extreme differences with. It's harder to sit with them. <laughs> but we can stand with them. So let's just do that already. Instead of focusing on, right, what tears us apart and what our differences are and the ways we can't stand that person's opinion or that person's political party or that person's stance on Israel or anything else, can we just, just for this, when we go to the meta level, when we go to the big stuff, when we go to the real meaning of stuff, We need to stand together. We don't have to sit together, but we have to stand together. All right, so we're going to close. I I have to listen to this podcast for my sermon. (laughs) So thank you all for contributing to. (laughs) You're taking a packet, yeah. Usually this is a double Parsha, which is why this says Parshiot. 
But in today's Parsha, we find the Israelites gathered east of the Jordan River listening to Moshe's final speeches. It is a liminal moment, a threshold moment, as they are about to be, quote, lifted out of their wandering years in the desert and enter the promised land. The anticipation and excitement is palpable. But of course, there's also fear. The Parsha opens, you stand today, all y'all, before Adonai, your God. This verse pulls the Israelites and us with them back to the moment when Moses and the people reaffirm their covenant with God standing at Sinai. And we get the quote from that. Standing, they declared their allegiance to God, their covenantal bond to the Almighty. The word Nitzavim in our reading has the same root. The people are standing in a powerful manner. They are presenting themselves before God. Here's the Chiddush. So too, we are preparing ourselves to stand before God on the high holy days which then inspires us to do the introspective work of self-transformation that these days of awe require. This Torah reading points to the future as it states Hayom, this day, a day thousands of years ago and also today, this very day. We are about to stand before God on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Think of our community standing together during Kol Nidre. It is an annual reenactment of that first standing before God. Now, standing on the threshold of the new year, engaging in tshuva and the efforts it requires can be daunting. It is like assuming a new leadership role. This occurs in our Parsha when Joshua is appointed the next leader. Like us, perhaps Joshua felt a bit overwhelmed. Moses encourages him and all the people with the words, chazak ve'amatz, be strong and resolute. Next page, paragraph starts, we have the power. We have the power to stand at this moment and to really step into a new space, a new land, a new year. One must look inward, become more aware of ourselves and work hard to make better choices. This is the work of this season And this is the opportunity for which God and Torah have prepared us. May we all appreciate this covenantal moment just before Rosh Hashanah as it existed for our ancestors thousands of years ago and more importantly as it exists for us today as we embark on a new year. So I want to leave all of you with the image of Atem Nitzavim. We stand not once upon a time, but we're about to stand again Kol Nidre, Rosh Hashanah, we stand, we affirm our place in the covenantal chain, in the chain of history of the Jewish people. May we do honor to the Jewish people and to those before us by how we choose to live our lives this year. Shana Tuva Umetuka Techatvu Vatechatmu. May you be written and sealed for a good, healthy, and happy year. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.